This is Jorge Lozano, Data Science Manager at Steelcase, and you're listening to Experiencing Data with Brian O'Neill. Experiencing Data explores how product managers, analytics leaders, data scientists, and executives are looking at design and user experience as a way to make their custom enterprise data products and analytics applications more useful, usable, and valuable. And now, here's your host, the founder and principal of Designing for Analytics, Brian O'Neill. Brian here. Before we begin today's episode, I need to mention that I intended this show to be evergreen, but at the time I'm recording this, we can't ignore that COVID-19 has been around for many months and will probably be here for a lot longer. Nonetheless, I still think you'll find the insights Jorge will be sharing today about his data science and UX work at Steelcase useful no matter when you listen to this episode. Also, I wanted to share some information on my private community offering called Mastermind Pods. If you believe human-centered design matters and that making AI, machine learning, and analytics useful, usable, and customer-centered is critical to your technology efforts producing real value, then enrolling in a mastermind pod might help you, especially if you sometimes feel like it's hard to find and network with others who also share this mission. A mastermind pod is an exclusive, diverse, four-to-six-person, peer-to-peer learning group for software leaders who believe that making technology human-centered matters. I'll be assembling each pod myself, so that the conversations are deeper and the relationships last. I'll also host monthly discussions for a year with each pod, and between those conversations, you'll have a place to learn from your podmates' wins and missteps, get advice on that bold new strategy that you want to pursue or try out, see how your peers are driving adoption of AI and analytics in their companies, and to give advice when you've got an experience to share that can help one of your podmates. Visit designingforanalytics.com mastermindpods to get on the early access list today. And now let's jump into the episode with Jorge from Steelcase. Welcome back everyone to Experiencing Data. This is Brian O'Neill, and I'm really happy to have one of Steelcase's data science managers, Jorge Lozano on the show, who I recently met on a uh, webinar that the International Institute for Analytics had asked me to do uh, that kind of covered design and product thinking as kind of the missing gap in analytics and data science work. Uh, And so we had Jorge come on to kind of talk as a practitioner on that webinar. uh, And I I really enjoyed the conversation. I thought we could go uh, a little deeper on this conversation in the podcast on some of the stuff that we didn't get to uh, in the uh, webinar with IIA. So Jorge, welcome, bienvenidos uh, to the show. It's great to have you here. I'm I'm happy to kind of pick up our conversation. How's it going? Brian, thank you so much for the invitation. It's a, it's a real pleasure. Very excited to be here and, and very excited to chat with you and, and the audience about this topic. Great, great. Well, um, so Steelcase, uh, I immediately think of desks, furniture, chairs, uh, industry, you know, commercial workspace. Um, is that still the way to think about Steelcase today? And, and how, do you, how does your role fit into that uh, space? That, that's a great question. Given that we're mostly a business to business, company, we tend to not be on top of everyone's mind when you think of Steelcase as a brand. Mm-hmm. We've historically done office furniture, yet our strength lies in really designing spaces for people to work. The furniture is just maybe like a means to an end, but it's about understanding what type of spaces do you need, how many meeting spaces, what should be the distribution, what type of spaces are conducive to what type of work. And so we really pride ourselves in that research-based design to not only bring a combination of products that enable certain behaviors in the workspace, 
but also make sure that the products that we're throwing out there are, from an engineering perspective, really, really solid. Got it. And is the the main software, when we think about data science, then um, is your work primarily in software in terms of the what I would call the, the design tools, right, that commercial designers or workspace designers would be using to figure out, you know, what is a company of, you know, 1,200 whatever, you know, insurance company with 1,200 people working in a downtown location, converting a space. You call those designers as well. We'll, we'll do some vocabulary to cover the space here, but uh, do you primarily work on the software that the commercial designers use and to inform the, the analytical parts of that? Or is tell us about your data science work. Yeah, so historically, the main focus of the data that we use for our, our analytics is data that was used mostly for like order fulfillment and closing the books and all of that stuff. Definitely not data that was designed for that second day of like, all right, now I'm going to use this to provide analytics, but data that was created as a, as a need to connect our system so that we knew who had paid, who, who owed us, who ordered the pink chair and where did it have to go and all of that. So recently we've explored different data sources and I'm, I'm very excited maybe about sharing that a little bit more, but historically there's been a lot of work just with traditional, okay, these, is, these are the different data sources that we use to run our business. Now let's give the keys to the data scientists and see what they can do. And so it's definitely been a learning experience. So they, they handed you the keys, but what was the expectation uh, set there? So this, this takes us back maybe when the data science practices at Steelcase started formally. I would say that's probably about five or six years ago, maybe six six years ago. And it was more around, okay, let's bring a set of really smart people, really quantitative. We have this proprietary software that we use for analytics and let's give them access to the data and that'll solve our problems. And obviously there's there was at first this really big challenge of just understanding our data and make it suitable for second day analytics, bridging those data silos, right? I have this sales data and this operations and manufacturing data. How do I bring them together? I got the data about pricing, but then how do I combine? And so it was a, it was a, a really long time, longer than, than what I care to admit of us just kind of like really taking the time to become very savvy at the data. And the value that we brought back to our shareholders was more about bragging and in the sense of like, hey, check out what I can do. I can now tell you this customer that bought this, you built it on this day, and this is the role of fabric that you use for that. And so not particularly actionable, but insightful. And I think that's maybe the like the first stage of analytics at Stilkis was just kind of bringing that momentum on like, here's the art of the possible. I now feel like I'm in control. And then came maybe the second stage, which is, all right, now I'm able to answer questions from the business because I now know the art of the possible better and I can pair with the business a little bit better to maybe frame the answers and understand what I can answer and what I can't answer. And so maybe this became the era of static data science at Steelcase. And the reason why I call it static was because it was, it was very heavily focused on the business has a question 
that we frame it in terms of a hypothesis and we're going to try to prove or disprove it. And it was very helpful, very helpful to kind of support big decisions, make sure that our senior executives feel comfortable about certain big decisions. But obviously, as our data grew, our capabilities grew, and the needs of the business grew, that started to become outdated. And we were challenged with having data science more than enabling capability. By this, I mean, okay, now I don't necessarily need like a report that stops at a, at a PowerPoint. Now I need you to use a model to predict something, and then I need those predictions to make other decisions. So it's not kind of the end of the road. It's part of a process. And that transition was particularly interesting for a lot of things. First of all, it challenged us on a technical revolution, on a revolution around the skill sets, but it also challenged us to think a lot more about the user. And so I think there's a really big connection to a lot of the the value that, that you bring to organizations on like user-centered analytics. And this evolution really highlighted the need for that, which came in as a surprise to us maybe. And and I understand you can only share so much about, you know, some of the internal workings at Steelcase and, and, and the, the projects you work on, but can you tell me a little bit about this last phase of the work and having to become more user-centered? So what did it look like in the before time? And then what was it like afterwards? And what was the journey like that you had to go through to be, what does it mean to be more user-centered in, in your work? Like, what did you guys literally change over that period? That's an excellent question. And in fact, I, I have a, a very particular example that is a great way to reflect all of these different stages. And I think it'll resonate with the audience because it's something we're all experiencing right now, this pandemic, and just how have we chosen to react to it to better serve our customers. And so the story starts like this. We've always struggled with not being able to understand from our, our sales data and our, our traditional data sources, how our products came together. And the analogy that I like using is we would typically be able to look at the receipt of what they bought and say that you want to buy everything that you're going to use for your dinners throughout that week. So we would know everything that you bought, but we didn't really know what meals you cooked. And that was going to be something so insightful because we would be able to say a lot more about your preferences and which ingredients that we sell would be more effective. So we, we weren't particularly effective in doing that. But by clearly defining this as an enabling capability that we wanted to go after, we started exploring different data sources that could allow us to go after this exact thing, understanding how our products came together. And so this required us to go after data sources from things like our design softwares or the softwares that our, our dealer designers use. And we were extremely excited but the end insight at this point was, oh my God, the analytics that we're going to have in terms of understanding our customers is going to be so much better. And I'm talking about maybe early February when we kind of hooked all the pipes together and the data started flowing on, on kind of a pilot. And then COVID happened. And so obviously priorities across the board change and you're just trying to understand what 
of what you were doing is still valuable and what of you were doing is no longer valuable. But we immediately realized the potential that this data source that we enabled would have to address some of the most important concerns that people were having around the pandemic. The first thing that happened when everyone went to work from home and people were wondering whether the office was safe was, okay, can we use this data to understand the current state of the North American office? Are workstations safe? Do they comply with standard social distancing metrics in terms of that six feet radius? or maybe having enough division so that if somebody sneezes and that person just happens to be sitting in the workstation in front of you, is there a potential for you to get contaminated should this person have any type of disease? And so this data really enabled us to make very specific metrics to understand the current state of the North American office. And we were able to come up with really powerful metrics on, okay, here's the distribution of distance between workers Here's a distribution of the height of screens and divisions that they use and came up with really interesting metrics that even were even used to inform state governments and even the federal government. Things like, well, over 92% of workstations will not comply with some of the standard social distance metrics, like maybe enough division or enough distance between workers. And so that was, that was really powerful. But obviously, that in itself is, again, insightful, and it's that kind of moment of I've been able to connect the data and understand how to translate it into things that are interesting. But now, how do I make it actionable? What's the next step? So the next step is, okay, we need to understand what are the, can we come up with the typical workstations, the, the ones that are most representative of what our customers would have in their office spaces. And then we're going to take the time to retrofit them so that we can either add enough distance or enough division by optimizing the use of products to either maximize for privacy, maximize for the use of density. So how could we help our customers bring people back into the office by leveraging the maximum amount of furniture that they have, but adding a couple of hacks and tweaks there to make it safe, right? But in reality, we didn't really know whether what we were suggesting was at all safe or whether it created any sort of difference, right? And what we did is we partnered with MIT and their Department of Epidemiology. And using the data that we've collected, we came up with samples of workstations that are representative of what our customers are most likely to have. And we retrofitted them. And then we put the retrofit test in this lab that basically simulates the sneeze of a person or somebody coughing or somebody kind of spitting a little bit while they're talking and all of that. And we're collecting some really amazing insights that can quantify the extent to which certain retrofits work in disease transmission. And so it's not about being 
completely DC transmission free. You probably need to be like in a hyperbolic chamber, but it's a decisions can I take to mitigate the risk? And so that in itself has been very, very exciting, right? How did you guys figure out what does, who owns the problem space of what does someone who's a, you know, a designer, I, I guess like if you already have an office full of furniture, I don't know who does this work, if it's like someone in HR or whether they call up their design rep or whatever, and they say, you know, what do we need to adjust to make our workspace compliant? Initially, you can hear someone saying how, well, are we ready to go back to work or not? But I would really wonder as a designer, it's like, well, okay, we can give you a report out. And the answer is no, you're not. And 92% of the desks are too close together and whatever. So then it's like, well, what's the next question? Well, what do we do about it? Right? So I'm exactly. curious, like, how did you decide what are we going to work? Like, which problem are we going to work on? Are we going to tell people what's wrong? Are we going to provide them with alternatives? Are we going to, you know, whatever it is, how did you guys go about that process? Who, who owns that problem of figuring that out and what somebody needs? T tell me about that. Right. And that is a great question. And, and that is the challenge of uh, transitioning from static data science into data science as an enabling capability. It's like, right, we could probably pull off a really cool report of uh, what we're seeing in terms of the current state of the North American office and what we're hearing from MIT. But is, is that a competitive advantage? Is that enough? And the answer is no, right? You have to think, how is this going to help our users? We can't take the time to email everyone. We can't take the time to go dealer designer by dealer designer and analyzing every single case. And so this is when we said, okay, we need, we need an enabling capability. What is that? Well, what if we could come up with a way to analyze a floor plan and provide recommendations of what are the retrofits that would optimize for something? Maybe it's optimized for distance, optimized for division, optimized for a spread of a kind of virus or, or some type of pathogen. And at the same time, okay, this is something that could really help dealer designers as they're engaging with their customers. So we need to think about what are they going to show their customers? They need to show what the current state is. They need to show the implications of doing nothing because everyone could achieve enough distance by just saying, okay, I'll ask half of my people or two thirds of my people to work from home. The challenge is how do I bring them back safely? And so we needed to think about an experience that our dealers could use to better serve the customers. And so in a way, the experience in itself needs to be designed for the end user, but it needs to be designed with the thought that it's our dealers who will use it. And so that is tricky. It, it's not as simple as it seems. And not only that, we also had to think, can we assume that all customers are going to call their office furniture dealerships and, and ask about how to bring people back into the office? Because... I mean, it might seem like the first thing that I can think of, but man, I've been working in an office furniture company for 10 years that it just, I may be a little bit biased, 
But if you think about people, they might not necessarily understand that that could be a great way to figure out how to best support their employees. And so we also needed to think about, okay, we need to create leads for our dealers so that we can tell them out of your wallet of customers, these are the ones that are at most risk, either because of their type of workstations, their location, the nature of their business. And so we needed, again, to create this holistic experience. But as you said, it was so challenging trying to iron out who owns this. Because at first, we're just trying to get data out of a design software. So you got data engineers and you got some sort of guidance and you have a data scientist that's kind of like exploring, is this enough for what the analysis that we need to do? And then when you got the static component, I mean, data scientists can take it a very long way and you might just need some business insights or partnering with a designer to iron out the details and make sure that you're kind of thinking holistically about the insights. But creating this experience that isn't just a data scientist, that is not just a data engineer, that's not just a designer. You need a squad. You need somebody that can see this as a product. And and so we took longer than I care to admit to rattle the troops and form a squad to hit hard and fast this initiative. And the funny thing is, and, and I, I wonder if, if a lot of, of your listeners and practitioners experience the same thing. Sometimes like everyone knows there's value. Everyone knows it can be done. But just kind of aligning the resources, it just sometimes takes longer than it should. And it's because we are traditionally not set up in ways that are conducive for these kind of really dynamic squads that kind of swarm on kind of like a a data-driven initiative or a digital experience. You know what I mean? Sure. And I think part of that comes down to knowing, knowing who you need to serve the most, you know, in your case, this is what I, I just wrote about this to, to my mailing list, the, the insights mailing list last week that what I call the two hop challenge or the two hop problem where you know, in your in your case, just for people that don't know, and correct me if I'm wrong, you know, Steelcase, you guys do you offer office products and desks and workspaces and all this kind of stuff. But the the person that you work with closely, your your customer in a lot of ways is the dealer designer, and their customer is like the office manager or the HR person or whatever. So there's two hops, and ultimately, you really want to make the final in the last mile, right? that last person is really the one that you you serve the most but day to day in the tools and stuff that you create the dealer designers have a lot of you know they're they're a linchpin right they're they're like really critical to getting this stuff right so i think that's part of the challenge right is is who do we most need to serve and and how might their needs be different you know one person might just want the answer the other person might need to justify the answers like well, why are you trying to sell us this new chair or whatever, this new desk system, you know? And so they actually need all this evidence to back that up. So it doesn't sound like they're just trying to sell more product, right? They're, they're trying to actually really help the business uh, get back to work safely. Um, so did you guys figure out a way to ha- how you would frame that? And like, did, did someone 
make a decision like, you know, we're really here to serve our, our dealer designers right now and, and the tools and software that they will use to do this, provide this kind of insight? Or were you always thinking of it more from the actual downstream customer, the business, so to speak? Well, so it, it's 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 funny that you mentioned, and, and this was probably a game changer in terms of us kind of aligning mm-hmm. in the right direction. We brought up a product manager that has historically been very aware of the needs of our dealer designers. And what we did is we said, let's let's draw the art of the possible, let's mock up the experience, and then let's go through some user labs. And we actually uh, connected with a couple of dealer designers who volunteered to go through this kind of lab experience, interactive and that really tailored how we needed to show things and to what extent are certain capabilities nice to have versus must have. Right. And and that that kind of created our backlog of analytics initiatives. A lot of a lot of things were more like maybe design or how should we show things. But a lot of it, it's like, well, what is it more useful to you? Is it more useful for me to show you recommendations of compatible products or maybe just showing you the kind of the numbers of kind of if you want to keep enough distance you can only bring so many people and and so that in itself was super useful it's been the first project that i've worked at steelcase that we've done this and i'm going to say that we've done it right not necessarily implying that everything else that we've done we've done it wrong but saying that we really took the time to understand the user because, as you mentioned, we were facing a multitude of users. From from my perspective, as a data scientist, we had our main stakeholder, who's our marketing leader, but we also had our, our interior steelcase designers. And that was pretty much the extent of users that we were kind of used to deal with. But now we had to think about our dealer designers, and we also had to think of facilities managers that were making very important decisions on what they would need to do to bring their people back into the office. In that process, did you bring in, uh, when you said that you had your your user lab, so it sounds like you either did some what we would call participatory design, or you actually did some testing of the designs of some solutions to get feedback. Did you pick? Were, were those people coming from like the facilities and the downstream or were they coming more from your internal uh, colleagues? Mm-hmm. No, completely external. So we, we reached out to dealers by this time when we chose to do this user labs and this kind of mocked up experiences, we had already formed a squad, a cross-functional team, different skill sets. You had people that are very good at programming, web development, data science, but you also have an experienced designer there and you also have a project manager. And so all those things had to come together. Right. And that is the leap that organizations eventually have to make if they Mm want to be able to create experiences that have a very heavy data science component, but that data science in itself is not the end goal. Right, right. The... um the experience of, of working with a, a product manager and a designer, like, can you tell me more about what that was like? And, and did you have a, 
any particular learnings like you it sounded like broadly something changed for you going through this and i'm curious if there are any anecdotes that you could share about how you maybe you totally went a different direction with something or you perceived people needed this but in reality they had no interest in that any surprises or anything like that you can share well i i think sometimes as as data scientists you can often feel that certain metrics are very relevant and just how you present things are clear but in reality people just want a yes or a no and sometimes in data science or in statistics you're used to playing with probabilities or showing the extent to which something can be true or not true but that can be challenging sometimes to end users and so we need to make sure that and, and, and as an example if you're trying to say whether a variable is significant or insignificant you don't just say yes or no. You say, well, the p-value is 0.01 or whatever, right? And and you're used to kind of playing with that by saying, well, the likelihood of it being significant is very low. But when data science is part of a process, you kind of have to be more cutthroat and come up with rules of saying, well, if it's not going to be significant, then I'm not going to use it. So I need to put my threshold. And, and so... It, it just requires connecting a lot more with the business, being much more pragmatic, coming up with business rules that often we don't think of, but it's kind of how we needed to evolve our thinking to make the flow work. You know what I mean? Sure, sure. And yeah, I mean, it requires, I think one of the challenges is that, uh, especially when you're dealing with probabilities and things like this, someone has to be the line drawer. Like, where do we draw the line between exactly. yes or no? And and that's a really interesting challenge, right? Because I think people assume, well, data science will draw that. You're like, no, this is a this is a confidence question. This is a this is a partially an emotional question. This is a leap of faith. Like, exactly. It's a business question, actually. And and I think it, it's really an everyone question, right? Because I think, you, you know, the data scientists uh, can bring a level of understand you can help them make the decision on what the threshold should be by helping to understand the variables that go into the calculations and the predictions but but yes i think that's an interesting challenge and then it, you get into the how much of this do we expose to the customer do they need that level of detail do they need a binary you know yes no so i i think those are really interesting challenges yeah and <laughs> i mean one example that comes to mind is if we're going to make a recommendation of how to retrofit or reconfigure your space, we're developing an algorithm that would map the current space that they have with a template that would include the recommendation. And so in order mm -hmm. to do the matching, you need to do some type of similarity analysis, mm -hmm. right? The question is how similar is too similar? How similar is similar enough for me to say that it's a match? Because in my world, I'm measuring distances and I'm coming up with metrics that can help me assess the extent to which one thing is more similar than the other. But in their lens, they need to come up with a match regardless of whether that similarity was a 0.3 or a 0.9 or a 0.7. And so we need to we need to take off our, our kind of numbers hat and say, well, if you set the bar at 0.7, here's the things that could happen. Yet if you set the bar at 0.9, here's the things that could happen. Mm -hmm. So which trade-off is more important? Mm -hmm. Was that uh, 
a difficult pill for your teammates to swallow? Or I think maybe maybe it's not that it was difficult. It was that we probably weren't used on that being the center of the conversation. And uh-huh. so we needed to come prepared to allow people to understand the implications of drawing the line one area versus the other. You know what I mean? Sure, sure. And just to just to give some context to make sure, because I, I, we're, we're jumping into this conversation having talked about this before, so I want to try to draw a picture, and you tell me if I'm wrong about what we're talking about in terms of like software and a digital experience. So my understanding is your dealer designers, the people that are kind of your direct one-hop customer, they use some design, like a CAD-style design tool. I think it's called CET. And so this allows you to do 2D and 3D layouts of office space and to see the products placed in them, et cetera. And then this COVID-19, we'll call it a plugin or something, is effectively like software built uh, on top of that, right? It's like there's a steel case plugin and now there's this analytics COVID-19 plugin that does this analysis. Uh, did I get that right? It's kind of like an add-on to the the CET uh, software. Yeah, you're you're in the in the right direction. I, I guess I don't want to overshare some some of the capabilities, but that uh-huh. that's part of the experience that we're working towards. Got it, got it. So the the overall goal here being that the the person you know working these layouts can probably either know what to change about their layout or they can see some alternate layout or something along. You're you're going somewhere along those lines uh, with the experience. Is that correct? That is correct. And not only that, we wouldn't just be recommending everything. We would be recommending things that have a scientific backup that that emerged during our engagement with MIT. Got it. Got it. I'm curious from a subjective standpoint, right? uh, You're you're working with designers and creatives as well. So likability is a factor when we're talking about design, especially even with office workspace and all of that. People have to feel confident. They have to like the choices, whoever, you know, whether it's the designer or their client, everyone's, you know, not just looking for function. Right. So I'm curious, like, is there a quality level on this where maybe the steel case designers had opinions about like, well, don't ever show them a recommendation that has, you know, this layout because it's, it's healthy, but no one's ever going to accept that as a recommendation from us because no one wants 10 desks lined up, you know, in a row, like a schoolhouse, like, just don't show them that. Did yeah. you have any of those situations where Absolutely. there's like... Absolutely. I mean, okay. I think the aesthetics component of the physical space is something that it's very hard to train a model on. Right. And so you can come up with a proposal that is sound from a mathematical perspective, but is not very logical from like a design, interior design perspective. So... That that's one of the reasons why we're very intentional in kind of limiting what we suggest versus kind of go out in the wild and, and surprise me kind of thing. I can see how you can end up with you know, and you don't have to tell us where it's going exactly, but you you get into these like hypothetical tools, right? Where it's like your retirement planner, right? Well, save more and assume this return on your investment, and then it runs all these simulations, and you get some new thing. I imagine you had you mentioned you had some kind of designer working with you uh, on whatever this experience is, whether it's a hypothetical tool or whatever it is. What was that like uh, having design and product, you know, working with you? Was that challenge? Was it did it make your work easier? Did it make it harder? It definitely didn't make it easier, 
but it uh-huh. definitely didn't make it harder. I think it made it more valuable. Yeah. And that is something that I've had experiences where projects don't really pan out. They don't make it beyond the kind of proof of concept phase. Right. And and it, and it can be because we didn't really connect the dots the way we should. Mm-hmm. And I think the organization is is waking up and understanding that this cross-functional teams are what you need to really be able to squeeze the value out of data science as an enabling capability. And if we want to maintain our status as an industry leader, we can no longer just rely on having really good products. We need really good experiences. And in a market that is just so polluted and contaminated and i don't mean this in a in a in a derogatory way but by all these really cool experiences like amazon and and google and you get all these recommendations it's just so easy to do business with all these companies they obviously expect the same and and they can't often understand why is it so hard to do business with steelcase when a couple of clicks i can order something on amazon i don't understand yeah and so we need to step up, and I think it's the expectation of this more demanding consumer that digital experiences are just as important as the value of the product that you're making. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, it, this gets back to you know central theme of this podcast and and the work. It's you know the last mile is where you know good data science work goes to thrive or die, right? It, 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 <laughs> If exactly. people can't take those insights and do something, put them to use, uh, turn them into some kind of value, it doesn't really matter how accurate the modeling was or, you know, any of the insights, you know, even insights, it's like, well, what are you going to do with this information? You know, sometimes the information can sound really interesting, like, well, we can tell you how safe your office place is. You're, you're an 82 out of 100. Good job. Well, what does that mean? Like, does it mean it's safe? Like, should I invite everyone back tomorrow? Now you now you've put the question back on the user, like, what do I do with an 82 out of 100 score? Or if you tell me I'm a 20 out of 100, what do I do about that? What is the risk to me? Do I need to do I need to redesign my office? Do I need new products? That whole decision making uh, aspect is really what it's about. If you really push it out to the last mile, the the whole experience comes down to that ability to take action on on the, the insights that are provided. So. I think exactly. it's great you guys are thinking about that. You know, sometimes people ask me, you know, how do you, what we, you know, what are companies struggling? And this is typically not the non, the non-digital natives talk about this more than like a tech company would, but, you know, cross-discipline teams and multifunctional teams, it's just, how do you do that? We, we really struggle to get all the people together. And, some, and, and sometimes, you know, I find it surprising that it's a, a challenge because it's like, well, how would you possibly design a tool for, furniture designer for for workspace designers and not ever talk to a workspace designer. I don't know how you could possibly be successful not exactly. doing that. So tell me like how like what was that like putting together this you called it a, a, like a swarm team or something but but a team of like you had a designer, you had a product manager, you had the for the service uh, I'm sorry, the workplace designer like was this hard to get those people together and what why was it so unusual to to bring them together or wasn't it like you know, it's Maybe the way I've I've been telling the story can come across as as if everything was perfect, but man, mm-hmm. was it a bumpy ride? 
Yeah, yeah. And what was I bumpy th- about that? Tell, tell, share us. I think the the bumpiness comes with the who owns it and where where does this stop being a data science project and becomes an organization like when when is it when is it stop being a project and becomes a product and so when you said well we can quantify the risk of your setting right and that that's something that the data scientists can be very well versed in doing and maybe we can kind of stretch our creative muscles and do a cute presentation and that might be enough but taking this and transforming it into an experience goes outside of the scope of a traditional data science team. And we've had other circumstances where we haven't been very effective in communicating that the reason why we can't deliver on something has less to do with the fact that it's not technically possible and more to do with the fact that we just need other skills, skills from other people. Yeah, yeah. And so... It took, I would say, a lot of conversations in framing, okay, this thing that we want to do to support our customers and support the country, bringing their people back into the office, it's not that we can't do it. It's just that it requires more than data science. And so let's sit down and understand what are the roles and the personas that would need to be involved for us to really pull off something here that's magical. And then you identify those. Now you got to find those people either internally or externally and bring them together and align. And so sometimes there's probably like organizations that might have organizational structures that are very conducive for this. But at Steelcase, we had obviously people that are saying, well, you're going to you're going to steal this person from my team. I'm obviously packed with work and now you're giving me one less person to do this. But is this kind of sci-fi or are you kind of really doing it? And so things needed to trickle up until there was it, it reached a, a, a level, an executive level where there could be those conversations of alignment and say, mm-hmm. yep, we're all on board. This is it. This is, we're going and then trickle that back down and set up that swarm team. Mm-hmm. And I think this is a learning for us to be able to identify opportunities that we might need something like this and set the story right from the start and put it in the hands of the right people that need to make the right decisions so that the team can form. Mm-hmm. And rather than us taking three, four, five weeks coming up with this team after we already knew that this was possible and we already knew that there was a lot of value, maybe we can have a situation where it takes us a week to recognize that and then boom, you're, you're, you're rolling. Right. Did you feel like the challenge was that you had to convince someone that you needed some other skill sets or that you had, you guys were coming to the understanding of what you were missing and it, it was more the time for you to figure out what your request for resources looked like and then to present it. Was it, more of like a, you know, a battle with like getting the resource uh, approved, so to speak? I think it was both. I think at, at first it was the feeling of falling short after doing something that you're very proud of, but saying, yes, but how is this going to help 
our customers bring their people back into the office. And then the second one is when you when you're able to connect the dots. First is there's this sense uh, like I personally feel uncomfortable because you begin to understand well in order to pull this off I and my team can't do it by ourselves so it's not something that we can kind of raise to the occasion and save the day we need someone else and we need help and that might be vulnerable a vulnerable moment for maybe a data science team that was used to just going solo and being the hero Mm -hmm. but then it's about framing all right so what do we need and let's frame our ask and who do we need to get on board sure sure yeah i mean a, a lot of what you talked about to me is the you know this is reinforcing this reason why i think you know the data product manager role you know there's some different names for it i think is a really critical one because it's not it's not a great use of the data sciences team who you know you have a very specific skill set that not a lot of people have and you're best probably spent doing data science work and not doing resource planning work for digital experiences. Exactly. And this is exactly what, you know, a typically a product owner would do. Sometimes a, des- a product designer, you know, wears both the hat of the product owner and, and that. But whatever whatever their original skilling is, doesn't matter. The, the point is they are a kind of a hub and you can see how. Steelcase could really look at this as a product, a digital product. And it's it's really like we are owning the back. It's not the back to school. It's the back to work experience. Right. And this ties back to, you know, eventually selling furniture potentially or developing long term relationships for the next time there's an office refresh or whatever. But the point is, it's a real it's a it's a concrete thing. You can put a bound. You can put some boundaries on it. It's distinct. Uh, it, it needs different skill sets from there's a user experience component to making which has to do with making sure people can actually take the data science insights, take the research from the MIT people and put it to play, whether it's through simulations or, you know, just a, a readout that justifies something to a, a senior level stakeholder to say, you know, we need some budget and time to go and fix the office. Here's the proof, you know, if you need it, those skills are it's, there's lots of different skills there. And so I think this product mentality is really important, even if you're not going to sell this thing as a standalone thing, um, which is what I think we tend to think of product management means you own this thing that has a commercial aspect to it. And it doesn't need to have that in order for the product mindset to help you get the focus and clarity that you need. So and this whole messy came through. I think that's normal. You know, it's not it's it's always like this, right? It's never a straight line from A to B. I think it's normal. Companies go through their own organic way of arriving at these things sometimes. And so I, I don't think that's, I think that's the normal way to do it actually, yeah. you know, even if it's frustrating the first time you go through it, but, but I mean, would you all, do? all roads lead to Rome. I mean, yeah. <laughs> it's all pointing towards this side. So yeah, we yeah. know it's the right way. The challenge right now is how do we learn from this to set up a system where we can swarm at things faster, where mm-hmm. we're, we're, f- more efficient at understanding the needs and getting it in in the hands of the right people to make those important decisions fast. But it's all pointing towards data science as an enabling capability. It's a team sport. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. What would you uh, like? What would you recommend to someone in your shoes going forward? Like if they if they could not make the the, quote mistakes or, or save some of the time uh, that you had gone through, what would you advise people in your shoes? I think one of the most important things is 
if if you're a data science practitioner, you need to recognize and draw the line where you can take this and design an experience without the fear of saying, well, but I can't design that because I won't be able to do that. Just focus on what is the value for the user and then make sure that that connection and that partnership with with your stakeholder or your business partner is there. And so you can design that together without the fear of saying, well, yeah, but that's no longer data science, which maybe was something that we feared for a little bit of saying, well, you could you could do it this way and that way, but then that you won't need us. Different. You know? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. No, I understand. All right. This has been really uh, educational for, for me and I'm sure our listeners. So I really appreciate you being so willing to open up about, you know, your experience working on this, uh, this new digital experience at Steelcase. So yeah, no, so much. thank you so much for the invitation, Brian. Again, I had a blast and, and, uh, and I hope, I hope uh, your listeners enjoyed some some of this conversation. Yeah, I'm sure they will. Where where can people learn more about you? Do you have a website or LinkedIn, Twitter, some kind of way to to just be in touch and follow your work? So I'm available in LinkedIn for sure. Okay. Uh, if you want to learn more about Steelcase, Steelcase.com is a great resource. But more than happy to connect if if anyone has to wants to have a follow up conversation. Awesome, cool. Well, I will definitely link up your uh, LinkedIn profile and and uh, thanks again and good luck. Uh, as you guys roll out this uh, new experience. So thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Brian. All right. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Experiencing Data with Brian O'Neill. If you did enjoy it, please consider sharing it with the hashtag Experiencing Data. To get future podcast updates or to subscribe to Brian's mailing list, where he shares his insights on designing valuable enterprise data products and applications, visit designingforanalytics.com slash podcast.